This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. The crisp autumn air in Ohio brings beautiful foliage. Red, gold, and orange leaves somberly float to the ground one by one, signaling the end of a season, and that a Midwestern winter's just around the corner. A time when families get together and count their blessings over a table full of turkey, sweet potatoes, and pumpkin pie. But with that cool wind each year, brings back the harsh reality for one community that nearly a decade has passed, since one family never got to sit down together, never had the chance to give thanks for each other before they disappeared. It's November 10th, 2010. 32-year-old Tina Herman, her two children, 11-year-old Coney Maynard, 13-year-old Sarah Maynard, friend, 41-year-old Stephanie Sprang, and the family's dog all vanish from their Apple Valley home, leaving the town puzzled, grief-stricken, and terrified. This was very personal uh, for this community, for even complete strangers. Glenn McIntyre is a reporter for WBNS in Columbus, Ohio. These were two mothers and and two children, uh, and they were their own. And um, the community was was intensely emotionally invested in in this, and 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 still with the hope that they would be found alive. They're reported missing when the kids don't show up for school and Tina never arrives at work. Her coworkers got concerned, um, and that's what kind of uh, kicked off this missing persons investigation. Knox County is uh, about an hour northeast of Columbus. Uh, the, the town is Mount Vernon, uh, is the, the county seat there. Uh, very, very quiet, rural, peaceful. Um, really beautiful country community that that doesn't see uh, tragedies like this. When police go to Tina's home, they find blood inside. It's an unusual amount. It isn't from someone stubbing their toe or cutting their finger, you know, peeling an apple or something like that. And with further investigating, they uncover their first major clue inside the garage. They found Walmart bags with uh, heavy-duty trash bags and tarps inside the the Walmart bags. So they went to the Walmart in in town in Mount Vernon uh, and began working with them to pull surveillance video. Um, They were able to to make a connection between who had purchased uh, those items and then the time of the purchase. That Walmart bag leads police to Matthew Hoffman's doorstep. They found a man on surveillance video making those purchases they then found you know followed him outside on surveillance video and saw the vehicle he had gotten into uh and they it was a toyota yaris um which was a a small silver compact toyota they then scanned through state records databases all of the toyota yaris's registered in knox county 
and one of them came back to him. They cross-referenced, pulled up driver's license photos, and the photo from the the man in the surveillance video from Walmart matched the driver's license of Matthew Hoffman, who had a vehicle, a Toyota Yaris, registered there in Knox County. And as a matter of fact, in his driver's license photo, he was wearing the exact same shirt he was wearing when he purchased these materials at the Walmart and was seen on that surveillance video. So that is what led them to Matthew Hoffman's home. Uh, that's where they had they had enough information to, to get the search warrant uh, because there was no connect, connection whatsoever between Matthew Hoffman and these victims. Um, as a matter of fact, they, their initial suspect or person of interest uh, was the boyfriend of the estranged boyfriend, ex-boyfriend of one of the women. Um, and he turned out to have an alibi. So um, they they didn't have a whole lot to go on until the discovery of that Walmart bag in the home of the murder scene. Police go to Matthew Hoffman's home. That's where they find 13-year-old Sarah alive. She was bound, blindfolded, and gagged, and she was on a bed of leaves in his basement. His basement was full of leaves. Uh, And that became sort of a key, really bizarre piece of this story. Um, Matthew Hoffman had been a tree trimmer and uh, was sort of had the strange, bizarre obsession with trees and leaves. Uh, Inside his home, there were mounds of leaves on the floor, along the walls, lining the walls of the basement and even the living quarters upstairs were bags of leaves uh, stapled to the wall, floor to ceiling. Uh, In some rooms, they were stacked almost like bricks, uh, lining the walls of his home. Hoffman's a professional tree trimmer, and neighbors say he has an obsession with trees. He is a weirdo. I mean, he, he really was a weirdo. Like, he sat in the trees. If you look back here in the tree, there's a hammock where he would sit and watch people. He's just different. Sarah remembers the moment the SWAT team finds her inside Hoffman's Mount Vernon home, just a town over from where she'd been kidnapped a few days earlier. I heard someone come in and they said, get down, get down, and then um, they came downstairs and then, well, they they kept saying, um, I think she's down here, I think she's down here, and then like, a whole bunch of guys came down and then they got me and then they took me. I thought it was more bad guys at first, but then when they, when they, then when I saw them with their um, helmets on and, their, um, and then it said FBI on their thing, so then I knew that they were shooting me. And then put me on this um, ambulance cart and then put me in there and then took me to the hospital. From Sarah, investigators begin to piece together what happened. They record a conversation with Sarah en route to the hospital. We saw this blood on the tile and and there was nobody in there. We saw this blood on the tile. We're like, oh my gosh. And then he came and snatched us. One year later, in her own words, to WBNS for their special, Saving Sarah, Sarah describes walking into her home and knowing something's not right. I just saw blood and, like, the dog wasn't in his cage or, or my mom. The next thing she knows, he comes after her. He came in there and then got out his knife and then like cut me a little on my finger and then 
said that he needed a fine rope to tie my hands with, and then um, he took me down to the basement and then um, tied my hands and stuff, and then broke me back upstairs and put me on the kitchen floor, and then um, blindfolded me and gagged me. Blindfolded, she listens carefully to his movements around her. When he was in the bathroom, he kept coming out, and it sounded like he was running out of breath. And, like, he kept opening the fridge, and then um, he opened the—we had the—like, the sink was right where I was in front of, and, like, we had these little cabinets, and that's where our cleaning supplies was. And he opened it, and then I think he got something out, and then I heard him go in the living room, but I don't know what he was doing. And then, like, he went back in the bathroom, and I heard him turn the water on and then turn off, and then he flushed the toilet. The investigators later revealed that um, it was in the bathroom, in the bathtub, that he was dismembering uh, the three victims, Tina, Stephanie, and Cody. That's when Hoffman takes her from her home and drives her to his house. He grabbed me and then took me to the car and then put blankets over me. And then... um, then he started driving really fast, and then he took me to this house and then laid me on the floor for a minute, and then and then he came back and picked me up and then um, took me in this bathroom, and um, he took the blindfold and stuff off, and then I still had the, um, the ropes on, but he just left me in the bathroom. Then the man takes her to the basement. It was scary because I didn't know what what was down there because it was really dark and like and there was no window so you couldn't be able to tell if it was like daylight or if it was dark time. She's held captive for four days without food and is sexually assaulted. She was able to tell them what she had seen but she didn't know what had happened to her mother, her brother, or the friend Stephanie Sprang. And so that was still a complete mystery at that point. But the scene where she's snatched from holds some clues. It was an unusual amount of blood. So there was the fear that uh, that they had been the victims of foul play, but no one knew uh, for sure. And and so they continued searching. The community got involved. Uh, Hundreds of people uh, got involved in the search. There were search parties every day, every night. Uh, Local bodies of water were searched. Um, Dogs were brought in. Um, And so for another four days after Sarah's rescue, it was just a community-wide search uh, to, to try to find, with the hope of finding the others alive. Meanwhile, Matthew Hoffman was in custody all this time. During questioning with police, Hoffman denies he did anything. Initially, he wouldn't talk to investigators at all. Um, Then he started to break down and said um, he was was afraid of what he might have done. He was afraid he had done something horrible. Um, And eventually, he offered to lead investigators to the bodies if they would agree to let him escape and then agree to shoot him and kill him. Well, obviously, that's that's not an, a deal they, they would make. Uh, but they were investigating uh, 
you know, all this time while they're trying to get information out of him, of course, the investigation is going full speed ahead. Meanwhile, the community ties purple ribbons to every light pole in Mount Vernon and continues their tireless search for the family day and night. And on November 18th, just before Thanksgiving, investigators discover a grisly scene inside a hollowed-out tree in a wildlife preserve in Knox County. They're led there by Hoffman himself. This was the biggest story in the state at the time, uh, obviously. And so we had several crews fanned out across the community um, because we never knew when a development was going to happen or or where it would happen, where the victims would be found, you know, where, where there would be a development. Um, so at the time, the, the day that the victims were found, myself and a photographer were going along on one of the search with one of the search parties. It was all volunteers, uh, dozens and dozens of people met in the uh, parking lot of a movie theater and all dispatched out into different wooded areas. Inside the tree, they find garbage bags filled with body parts belonging to Sarah's mom, Tina, and her friend, Stephanie, as well as Sarah's little brother, Cody, and her dog. We have uh, discovered and recovered uh, the remains of uh, Cody Maynard, Stephanie Sprang, and Tina Herman. Glenn McIntyre is at the scene. Every detail that came out was was truly more horrific than the one before. Um, what we learned was that that Matthew Hoffman had offered to lead them to the bodies with the stipulation that the death penalty be taken off the table for him. And the victims' families unanimously agreed that that's, that's a deal they were willing to make to recover the remains of their loved ones. There was a hole approximately 40 feet up in this tree, and he had used his, his skills and his equipment as a professional tree trimmer. He had pulleys and levers that he used to pull himself with the victim's bodies 40 feet into the air to drop them into this hollowed out tree. And it's something he'll never be able to erase from his mind, even nine years later. One of the most chilling things I saw and and I will never forget is seeing three white hearses pass where we were standing en route to pick up the victims and, and transport them. All three victims had multiple stab wounds to the chest and back and then were dismembered. The sheriff called this the darkest day in, in Knox County's history. The sheriff admitted uh, it, it was so remote and the way he had done it was so bizarre and, and you know, so hidden. Uh, the sheriff said without him leading them to the bodies, it's possible they never would have recovered them. But after finding the bodies and Sarah, the question remains, why didn't Hoffman kill Sarah? I asked him if he killed him, and he said he didn't. But then I asked him if he was going to kill me, and he said no. Hoffman tells investigators his intention was to rob the family and tell Sarah he kept her for ransom. His home was in, in the city of Mount Vernon. Uh, the victim's home was outside uh, of the city in, in the, um, a neighborhood called Apple Valley. And it turned out his mother's house was very close to where the victims lived. He didn't plan uh, to kill them, to kidnap Sarah. This was a burglary. 
And he said he chose them because their garage door was broken, and he knew that, that he had a, a means of entry. In 2011, Hoffman pleads guilty to 10 charges, including the three murders and for the kidnapping and rape of Sarah. He's sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, with the death penalty now off the table for leading investigators to the victims' bodies. And their families make statements directly to Hoffman during his sentencing. You're a coward. You're a real piece of I hope you are cast into the fiery pits of hell, you sorry excuse for a human being. Stephanie Sprague's sister, Sherry Baxter, wants to look Hoffman in the eyes one day. I want to see him face to face because I wanted him to look into my eyes and see my sister. And I vowed to myself, before I die and leave this earth, he will look at me. It's a case that has forever haunted McIntyre, even to this day, especially the sight of that hollow tree. Just in the middle of these deep, dense woods, you saw this tree, which almost became the final resting place of, of these victims. And there was a square um, hole cut in the tree um, where law enforcement had cut into the tree to reclaim and recover the victims. Um, and Matthew Hoffman had requested, uh, as part of him sharing the location, he requested that that tree not be harmed, that that tree stay and, and be left where it is. Law enforcement did not keep that promise Um they cut the tree down shortly afterward um, out of respect for the victims. And it's a day that changed the small community forever, he says. The day the victims were discovered, it was just the, the, the heartbreak and the grief in that community. It was, it was palpable. You, you could feel in the air. This had been eight days of people praying and searching and hoping for a miracle. And the news that these two women, this little boy, had been found dismembered in such a horrific, grisly uh, ending. Um, it, it was truly devastating to this community. One of those in that community is Donna Davis, who lived next door to Hoffman. One person affected so many lives in this community. Justice is never going to be served to what he did, and no matter how many years he does. That's never going to bring back Tina and, and Steph and, and Cody. And for Sarah, it's still hard to trust. You watch all around you, making sure that no one tries to take you. Hey, listeners, this is Spencer Brudig, Will Johnson, and Jessica Knoll. Jessica, one of the things that's so striking about this case that I have to start off this discussion with is Matthew Hoffman, the killer, um, his obsession with trees. He worked with trees. He buried the, their bodies in a tree. He had trees literally covering the inside of his house. It's just such a bizarre thing. What is that all about? Uh, I couldn't tell you. All I can tell you is that this is one of the most obscure obsessions I've seen in any of the true crime stories that I've worked on over the years. Like, I don't know how someone builds the inside of their house to almost replicate living inside a forest. Um, you know, he he made walls out of leaves, bags of leaves. He made beds. He, everywhere you turned, 
there were remnants of trees in this house. And then he used it, like you said, to be the final resting place for his victims. And it just adds to that bizarre behavior and obsession well, and he also, has. The, I mean, they would not have been able to find these bodies if he had not no. led them because his skill of climbing up, you know, 40 feet into a hollow tree and dumping by, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific and incredible. That was crazy. I was thinking about when you're describing that, the fact that he had pulleys and all of his equipment there and he was able to go out there. I don't know what time of day or night it was. Well, and he used to perch in trees. His neighbors would see him like up in trees watching over the neighborhood. So he was, this was like his element. He was used to this. This was like second nature to him. So twisted. I, I was really, I have to say, I was really happy to hear that he made this request that the tree would not be cut down, that they went ahead and cut the tree down. Right. The police didn't want to make this scene a spectacle where people would come and see his handiwork, basically. And so the nature preserve where this tree was found, which, by the way, they never would have found had he not led them there. And so they didn't want it to be that that kind of memorialized place for him or the victims. So they cut it down out of respect for the, the victims and the families. And that image of the three hearses pulling away from that preserve is so poignant, touching, and terrible. Yeah. I watched the video of that from the documentary that the station did, and I can't imagine being there at that scene and watching that, you know, as they carry those victims away. Just horrendous. And do you have any updates on the now not 13-year-old girl? It's been seven, eight, nine years on Sarah. What's she doing now? Right. So the that documentary that WBNS in Columbus did, um, they actually spoke to her, and you hear her in this episode, and they spoke to her about like a year after she was rescued. And at that time, she was living with her dad. Um, she had obviously a lot of trust issues of who she could trust and everything, but she seemed to be doing pretty well as far as school goes. She was playing volleyball. She made the honor roll. Um, I'm not 100% sure where she's at today, um, but that's where she was at that time. All right, Jessica, thanks for bringing us the story this week. Of course, we bring you a new story and a new case every week. Uh, we've been doing this since June of this year, so uh, a fair number of back episodes you can go and listen to. Spencer. Also, if you like this show, make sure to tell your friends about it, uh, rate uh, and review this show uh, wherever you're listening to it. It would really help us out. And... Uh, a huge shout out to Glenn McIntyre, a reporter with WBNS in Columbus, Ohio, who uh, helped us with this story. And if you want to discuss some of these cases with us that we cover on True Crime Chronicles and Vault Studios, or you have a case you think we should look into, visit us on our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault, and join a couple thousand members where we talk about these cases and more.